Welcome back to MetaStation for our recap podcast of episode 403, The Four Horsemen. Uh, I am Claire. I am a writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. So a couple of pieces of business to get out of the way first. I, um, <laughs> I am both sleep deprived and I think getting sick this podcast. So if I'm like loopier and dumber than I usually am, I apologize in advance. <laughs> My brain is not exactly like forming short term memories. Um, and then what's the other thing I'm doing? See, there's the short term memory thing. Oh, okay. So, uh, <laughs> so earlier this week, my friend Shash was listening to the podcast and, uh, she was making fun of me for the way that I say blark. Um, as so many of you do. <laughs> and, uh, and she compared it to, um, she, yeah, we were like chatting and she's like, oh, it's like the way that, uh, Britta on Community says, I'm not going to say it, you say it, Claire. I don't want to give away. Bagel? Yes. That word. Um, and I was like, oh, haha, I actually say that word the way that Britta does as well. And Shash was like, you have to be fucking kidding me. And I was like, no, I, that's, I do. In fact, that was, I got made fun of by my husband for like literally years over that. Um, <laughs> so obviously the only thing to do with that is she decided she was going to write a story uh, about Blark in which um, Bellamy works in a shop that sells that baked good. And uh, and says it the wrong bagels <laughs> says it the wrong way the way the way that I do um, in order to in order to like basically drag me but she said she's like okay if I make this a, a story in which Bellamy has a podcast and the podcast is like a shout out to your podcast will you say that word on the podcast <laughs> and I was like if, I was like yeah if you write that fic sure whatever it's fine and then obviously because it's Shaw she wrote it like in a day and it was up and I was like fuck <laughs> but it's a, it's a really great story it was hilarious so anyway so for Shosh, uh here is here is um my payoff for you calling my bluff I would love someday to get a Balark bagel I <laughs> okay so here so so here's Here's my commentary. So first of all, well, first of all, I love, I just, I fucking love Shosh. But also, B of all, and maybe this says more about my observational skills than anything else, but like, I literally never noticed that you said it that way until you were telling me about, you're like, oh yeah, Shosh wrote a thing about the way that I say bagel. And I was like, wait, what? And then I was thinking back in my head, I was just like, like, like I, I have no clear memory of ever hearing you say the word bagel or noticing that it was that you we pronounced it like violently differently. <laughs> this was this whole thing was like a revelation to me. I was like, oh, because I just sort of assumed that that whole joke on Community was just like it's funny that Britta says it like that because real people don't say it like that. And then for seventeen years you've been hiding this secret identity <laughs> of this person who says bagel. This is crazy. You're blowing bagel, my mind. Bagel, bagel. And then and so like the, the really <laughs> funny thing is that after we watched that episode of Community, which was like ten years ago. And Jordan started making fun of me. I started like violently overcorrecting. <laughs> I was like so hyper aware of it. But instead of actually starting to say it correctly, I just like somehow turned it into a diphthong. So then it was like bagel, ba ba bagel, <laughs> ba bagel, bagel. And then I was like, it was like bagel for a while, like really overcorrecting. Oh so I, the the long the, the sort of long version of the story is that I cannot ever possibly say the word bagel 
<laughs> without like having no idea what's going to come out of my mouth at any in any given instance. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. I feel like I I'm everything about this is delightful. Except the fact that I didn't notice it for 17 years. <laughs> Which is also, I mean, if this story is kind of like quintessential Aaron's story, then the fact that you have been my best friend for 17 years and have not ever noticed that I say bagel weird right. is like quintessential Right, I mean, th- yeah. Yeah. Not, n- not noticing really obvious things that everyone else assumes are a given is very on brand for me. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like the amount, the amount of dragging I have taken since the revelation that I didn't notice that there were 100 people (laughs) being saved in the ark on a show called The Hundred. I was like, like, okay, well that, that makes me feel really stupid because it turns out everyone else knew to the point where they were like, yeah, it's really obvious. And I was like, oh, good. So yeah. Well, we had at least one person say that they also didn't notice. You're not entirely alone. Yes, yes, that's true. I'm just, yeah. Just uh, mostly alone. Times. And I'm not, the, I'm not the only one besides the fictional Britta Perry who says bagel weird because it turns out that my friend Hawthorne Whisperer, who's also from Wisconsin, says it the way that me and Britta do. So so I actually think it's a Wisconsin know. thing. It could be a Wisconsin yeah, thing. Yeah, I don't know how it wound up in the community, but... I feel like it could be one of those things where you just like, like everyone around you says something one way. So you just genuinely don't realize that it's weird until you're like out in the world. And then you realize that like everyone else calls it basil instead of basil. And they look at you like, what the fuck are you talking about? And I was just like, "Uh, that's that's how, that's how we say it in my house. (laughs) That's how I say it. (laughs) It might be, it might be a regional Wisconsin dialect thing. It, It might be. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't realize I had an accent until, um. I went to college, and then everyone was like, oh, my God, your accent. And I was like, what? Just like I didn't realize I was saying Blark wrong until we got a podcast, and then everyone was like, what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, I'm saying my ship name like I always say it. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, over in Polis, Octavia sure is into murder. (laughs) (laughs) She Yes, she is. She's just, she's, she's. Yeah, she's really doubled down on it. It was an interesting, I I did like the little revelation that, you know, that Roan was basically on board with it. That Roan's like, hey, so I need a murderer. You're pretty good at this. (laughs) Like, killing the ambassador was kind of like her audition. And he was just like, great, you're my new assassin. He's so thoughtful. You know, like, he's got a city full of, he's got a whole army full of people who do that. He's got Echo. Like, why didn't he ask Echo? I actually think it's very thoughtful of him to be like, I could ask Echo, who is my official murder person. But I think it would mean more to Octavia. She loves murder more. Yeah, I'm gonna give the, I'm gonna give this kid a shot. You know, a shot of the big time. Yeah, but I did like I, <laughs> I I really liked that exchange, and I actually liked. I mean, like the the bit with Indra and Rowan at the end. I mean, even before we knew that that uh, the you know the flamekeeper was Indra's daughter, and that you know, so they literally been standing there casually, like cheerfully discussing in murdering Indra's daughter in front of her for the last like two minutes mm-hmm. um it was a really interesting exchange of like god Adina Porter in this episode is just amazing oh and like the man she's amazing the number of levels yeah. that she managed to like convey and that's you know really really awesome but I thought it was like the exchange that they had I thought was really was kind of cool you know like culminating with Roan saying 
one life for thousands, that's good politics. You know, I just like, I sort of like that we got that sort of glimpse into his perspective where he's, he, you know, he is kind of thinking like, like large scale macro political level, you know, he's sort of like assassination is actually pretty handy. <laughs> Which feels very realistic. That's a real calculation yeah, that yeah. politicians have to make all the time. And I like that we got to see that he's, he's a lot more canny than I think we you know, we thought when we were sort of first introduced to him, you know, I mean, like he has, he has a better kind of strategic brain than a lot of other people that we've seen in leadership positions on the show. Like, and the whole one death to save thousands, spark, you know, like it, it made me think of the, of the Finn thing from season two, you know, it's a, that was a strategically sound deal yeah. for Kane to make with Lexa. It's like, it is, it is good politics, you know, and he's, and I think, you know, like we we were talking about before, like, I think this episode, the Polo storyline to me really felt like this is table setting. Like we're moving the chess pieces into place on the board for what's about to become a, a pretty big, messy eruption with things kind of blowing up on all sides. So this was sort of more about like, who are the players? What does everybody want? What are the pressures it runs up against? We can sort of feel the walls closing in on him a little bit over the course of the episode. But yeah, but I like I like seeing that side of him that really is good at his job, you know, and just like with Finn, it's like the the caveat to the kill one person to save thousands is that that's a person that our characters have a relationship with. So it doesn't feel yeah like yeah. an abstract political calculation to them. Finn before it was like, you know, like Raven, someone that Raven and Clark love. And so they couldn't just be like, oh, yeah, sure. No, mathematically, that works out fine. That's a good deal, you know, and just like. You know, it's like here, like once Octavia realizes that, you know, the guy is Indra's daughter, she's she doesn't quite know what to do now because strategically it's still the right choice, but now it's become something that's personal. Yeah. And I think like this is another little instance that just occurred to me, actually. One thing that I think that's true in this episode and has been true certainly in the last episode, um, I think in the first episode, but the last two definitely have been like so tightly constructed in terms of theme you know like that that they've been really they've had like really really strong central themes and like so I think that calculation that Roan articulated one life for thousands you know that's good politics and you know so what you're talking about like one life for thousands is like a very logical calculation but the problem comes when it becomes personal you know we see that reflected over and over again in this episode but like this is a kind of political version of the problem that they face in arcadia too mm -hmm. you know where it's like one life of a little girl right now versus hundreds of lives potentially or, or you know however many lives in the future that kind of like abby versus raven calculation um, and then, you know, which is, it's another version of the same calculation with the 25 slaves versus the 400 archers in 402. So we kind of see like this, you know, the same kind of idea being worked through from different angles. And, you know, so it's kind of cool that we get like, this is the non-radiation is coming political version of that same sort of conundrum. It's structurally, this season is so clean, which I just really, it's just really lovely. I mean, it's just, it's such good writing. It's such, you know, well-structured, well-shaped storytelling. And I really like that, you know, I think we're getting all these really beautiful parallels, but they're not kind of clunky and ham-handed. It just sort of feels like the central question of the season is, is all of these sort of different situations where, for whatever reason and with whatever motivation, 
a leader is put in the position of having to determine who gets to live and who gets to die and the pressure of being the person who has to make that decision and all of the different forces that might pull you into deciding one way or the other. It's sort of like, you know, we see it in a lot of different ways. It's moving the plot forward in a couple of different directions, but it's like that sort of central core question of this ethical crisis that Clark is really finding herself in the center of having all of the other storylines kind of orbit around that same, you know, everyone is asking themselves the same set of questions. I think keep storytelling really tight, even though you have one version is the kind of like what's going on with the power vacuum in Polis, what's going on with how are we, you know, how do we keep Rowan on, you know, on the throne? How do we keep the clans from revolting? And so there's sort of the, there's a political storyline and then there's this very sort of intimate, you know, the, the medical storyline, that's a whole different thing, but that the theme of this season is already so clear and we're sticking to this track where everything is branching off of this one line, I think just makes things really, it's really beautifully symmetrical and, and in a way that feels pretty elegantly handled and not like, you know, the theme of this is don't play God, you know, like it, it's <laughs> like, it's really, right, right. it's really deft and subtle and, and it's very organic. The situation in Polis with Ronan and Octavia is sort of grows out of the that situation that they're in and the people who are involved. You yeah. know, like that felt like that that was a, you know something that felt like a very Ronan thing to do, and and all of the sort of reactions that Octavia had throughout were really driven by her character and by her you know the long history of her relationship with Indra. So you know we talked in the last couple of podcasts about how the plot is really character driven. But I think the themes are really character-driven, mm-hmm. too. You know, so it's all kind of, like, coalescing around this central thing, which is great. And I was also thinking, as you're talking, another really cool thing that hadn't occurred to me until right now is that in every single episode, it's the kids now. It's the delinquents who are making these decisions. In season one, it was really the adults who are making the who's going to live, who's going to die decisions, except for Bellamy and Clark. But even then, you know, we got that line about we don't decide who lives and who dies. So, but, like, now... You know, in Arcadia this week, it's Raven, not Abby, you know? And and, and Abby Murphy. says right out, like, like Abby, Abby says, we put you in charge of this. It's your call. You know, the, the whole sort of yeah. I- idea that, that the hierarchy of how decisions get made is based on, you know, like the adults lording it over the kids or whatever. It's like, we're so far past that. Like Bellamy and Clark, like Jaha works for them, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. They're, like, he watching... doesn't go anywhere unless without their say-so. Exactly, yeah. And, and Abby tells Raven you know, you are in charge of this. Like Abby, you know, Abby, who is the sneakiest, most devious person, you know, on the arc in season one is like, you are in charge. This is your plan. If you say no, the answer is no. Like I'm pissed about it, but I'm not going to do anything. And it's only when Murphy comes in and pulls a Murphy, you know, that she gets the medicine that she wants because Abby's like, she's not happy, but she, she is fully accepted that Raven is in charge. And even then, like it's Murphy who's making the call. You know, so it's another one of the delinquents who's making that call about he gets the dis- the medicine and decides to give it to Abby. So it's interesting. It really feels like it's a, a really nice narrative shift sort of, I mean, both, I, I think, in, in, in making sure that the show is sort of establishing really clearly that the leadership is shared now based on who is best suited to make that decision. You know, it's based on skill. Just, you know, really sort of drilling down into how far they've come from the arc hierarchy. You know, like, it's it's... It's satisfying in a sort of visceral way to watch Raven tell Jaha, like, get back to work, <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, no, seriously. <laughs> and Bellamy knock on the car door and be like, get out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, get, get out of the vehicle. Jaha, you can't, 
you can't go joyriding without asking mom and dad to use the car right <laughs> like it it's a it's a really sort of satisfying reversal but what i like about it is it doesn't actually deprive the adults of agency like like indra and abby yeah. and jaha all get a lot to do and move the plot forward so it it isn't diminishing them or backgrounding them but it is bringing to the forefront this new shift in both in in who makes the decisions and also everybody's kind of unquestioned acceptance of who is making the decisions you know and yeah um, and that's really interesting too because like we're getting little bits and pieces of like who are the people who are who are in the know about the reality of the situation and who are the people that are not? But yet still, you know, everyone has accepted that Clark and Raven and Bellamy are the people who are, you know, in charging or calling the shots. And and that's really satisfying to sort of see them really coming into their own as leaders. But it's also a reminder of the pressure that that puts on them. It's so hard to watch Raven in this episode. You know, I mean, it's yeah, just like it, yeah. it is um when we you know we can we can we'll get to them more in a second but it's just you know watching everyone have to sort of like figure out what to do you know without getting guidance from the adults like the adults are there and they're doing their own thing but like octavia like the part where she kind of broke my heart a little bit and you know in that scene with with indra and gaia is when octavia is like you tell me what to do can't, you know, like like octavia doesn't feel like she can make that decision but she's the person that has to you know she's the one that has the plan to circle back to the kids being the one to make decisions about who lives and who dies, you know, Octavia is really the one who makes that decision, those decisions in Polis. Like, uh, Roan gives her, you know, sort of tasks her with assassinating Gaia, but Octavia is the one who ultimately decides, I mean, basically not to do it. You know, she could have just gone ahead and done it anyway, carried out the orders that Roan gave her, but she didn't. She chose not to for Indra. And she's the one who came up with a plan. She's the one who decided to go, like, find the asshole yeah. leader guy yep. and, like, chop off his head <laughs> yes. as the, as the, uh, <laughs> as the um, sort of distraction tactic, which I was just like, damn, like, mm-hmm. I did not think that Octavia would go from zero to beheading an otherwise, like, innocent asshole, basically, right, right. for political purposes so quickly. But one life for thousands, right? Like, she did, she is, like, using the same logic that Rowan articulated at the beginning of the episode. You know, she killed one guy to try to prevent thousands, even though, you know, they're going to have to What I like about Octavia's storyline is that the the sort of implication that we had somehow, I don't know, I guess, like, absorbed through osmosis that she was going to be sort of using her murder skills, like, either on her own, you know, kind of like going freelance as a rogue assassin, or... Or you know, divorced from Sky Crew in some way, was was upsetting because it sort of was like that, like a, a an emotionally isolated version of Octavia going rogue in the countryside wasn't something I was super interested in. But what I like about how it manifested in this in this episode is like reminding us that no matter what happens, like no matter what she's been through, Octavia is still a person who values family so much. You know, like, yeah, like it, yeah. it says so much without saying it about her relationship with Bellamy when she goes after Indra and she's just like, she's family. She wants so badly, I think, for, you know, for there to, to be a way for Indra and Gaia to be recognized because she understands what it's like to only have one person. And so what I like is that even though, you know, even though she's gone, like, full on, you know, murder assassin, and I think whether it's the next episode or the one after that we really get 
you know, her and Kane kind of at loggerheads about those choices. I do think that her heart is still there. You know, she hasn't like she hasn't turned into a sociopath. She has values that she's carrying out. Yeah, she's, out. she's a, you know, she's a very, she's an extremely competent contract killer. But <laughs> but she's also still, she's still Octavia Blake. And she still has these deep connections to these people that she cares about that she is trying to protect. And we really saw it in the last episode with sort of, you know, Sky Crew as a whole, you know, making these choices that will keep Sky Crew safe because of her brother and because of her friends. And in this one, we really saw, you know, she's, by trying to protect Gaia, she's protecting Indra. And, you know, and when she tells her, like, I'll, you know, like, like, I'll do whatever you want for you. Like, you tell me what to do. You know, she will, like, whatever, whatever it is that Indra needs, she's going to do it, you know. And, and I think, so it's interesting in a, in both, I get the episode as a whole, really, but, um, but that storyline in particular, it's, it's very bloody and it's very dark, but it's also like, I felt like this whole episode was such a, like, love letter to the importance of families, like, like created families, like found families, but also in you know, like, like the concept of family, you know, and, and the, and the yeah. people that you are willing to make these brutal life or death choices for. And I think that's what really, you know, what keeps Octavia's story from going into a place that feels nihilistic, you know, or feels like she is sort of becoming a soulless killing machine is that the moment that she realizes who Gaia is, you sort of watch her, I guess, sort of, you know, she's recontextualizing her own relationship with Indra. I don't know, the, the kind of pseudo parental nature of it, you know, and and thinking about, you know, who Indra is and what she means to her and what she's lost. Those moments, like the the Octavia who thinks family is important and has these deep personal connections to people, remaining so visibly present even while she's, like, sliding around Polis, just slicing people's heads off, that's what keeps her from being, like, grim. That's what was, like, missing last season, I think, and all it was, like, the heart, the heart was not in a lot of those really dark storylines, you know, and I think that the heart is still in it here. Just to say on the kind of like reveal of Gaia and her being Indra's daughter, I think it's like it was, it was so beautifully played by both Adina Porter and Tati, Gab- Tati Gabrielle. In 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 that you sort of like you really felt that relationship. But I think you know it's it's kind of amazing how much we learned about Indra just from that little fact, just from that little exchange, you know. And and like you said, like Octavia learned so much about. I think Octavia learned so much in that moment about what Indra saw in her and what she was trying to the kinds of like emotional wounds that Indra was trying to kind of like heal or maybe atone for with Octavia you know not not that she's like Octavia was like a replacement right right yeah anything like that but just sort of you know like she suddenly realizes like part of the reason why Indra was so willing to I think maybe take her on and and mentor her and and keep sort of like reaccepting her. You know, it has something to do maybe with this relationship with her own daughter that fell apart. You know, and that just like it just adds such richness to Indra's character. Yeah, which I'm really glad to see. You know, like I think we got like so much more dimension to Indra as a character just from this little you know, that, that one, those couple of scenes than we've seen before, which is just, which is awesome because like, Indra's been around forever. She's a really cool character. Adina Porter obviously is like, you know, great and more than up to the task. Um, 
so I thought that was really cool. And I also thought, I mean, like, and again, I you know, I think this is another one of those moments where it's a plot point, obviously, you know, like the fact that she's Indra's daughter sort of like changes the direction of things that are going to happen for this rest of the episode that lead, that culminate in, you know, Roan basically in a position where he has to fight for the throne. So like it did motivate the plot, but it's another one of those things where it's like everything that happened in that room, that plot was, was really motivated by character. Yeah. You know, like yeah. you were saying, like, like everything that, that Octavia did, you know, is like, so thoroughly informed by who she is and who she's been and the fact that she does have this like really strong sort of sense of family I think you know a deeper sense of family than like just about anybody else you know like 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 if you think about was Clark like Clark in that room you know Clark is very empathetic and and you know and family is important to her but it's not quite it wouldn't be the same, you know? Like, she wouldn't have the same moment of, like, that's family. You know what I mean? But, like, also I think it's interesting because, like, Octavia is the only person, uh, you know, the only one of the Sky people who's had a sibling. So I think, like, her sort of, like, ability to sort of conceptualize this person as a kind of, like, sister, I think maybe is a piece of I that. hope that's a thread that goes somewhere because they have, you know, they have that really sweet little moment at the end, you know, before um, – before Gaia goes off with the real with the real flame, where she says, you know, like like it was a good plan, and they kind of smile at each other, and um, and instantly I was like, please be sisters, <laughs> like, <laughs> or you could make out. Either yeah, one. either way, I'm 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 willing to have a be family thing where I'm willing, I'm aggressively willing to ship it. Like like when they were fighting, I was like I was like okay, I'm like thirty seconds in, and I'm just like I could I could get behind a Gaitavia ship. Yeah, I think there's a I think there's a connection there between the two of them that I'd be really interested to explore, you know, because because Gaia, like, for for how comparatively little screen time she had and the fact that she's basically brand new to us, you know, we saw her in a crowd scene before, and and that was it. I think it it's it was really lovely how deeply I think we now have a sense of, like, what her perspective is, too. You know, like, her, this sort of fundamental conflict between Gaia and her mother about Gaia's life choices is incredibly moving and relatable and there isn't a bad guy you know like it it you understand why Indra wanted her daughter to be a kind of person that Indra understood you know like it's like we talked about like last last week with with Miller and Brian it's like it's just like totally different values you know like yeah. like Indra Indra believed that her daughter was going to grow up to be the leader of Tree Crew and and she feels like her daughter abandoned everything that she tried to instill in her about, you know, the kind of person that she wanted her to be when her daughter walked away from that and became somebody who has, you know, it's like she's not a fighter, has comparatively no power, is sort of, you know, perceived, I think, I think the sense we're meant to understand these people are sort of perceived as religious fanatics, you know. Um, yeah. And, uh, like, you know, like, Rowan makes that pretty explicit. And she's not really part of tree crew you know i think the nightblood scouts and this religious sort of structure that we're introduced to through them just this little bit they're kind of a people apart they're sort of their own thing you know so i think there's a sense of did gaia abandon tree crew did gaia abandon her mother that sort of seems to be i think in a lot of ways how indra saw it indra feels like she was wasting her potential and you know and then for gaia on her side there's this completely empathetic and relatable sense of like you know I like I told you what I want I clearly articulated to you what I want and what my values are and the kind of life that I want to have and 
you know, and your inability to accept it is like, that's on you. But like, this is who I am. You know, she's fully self-actualized. She's like, this is who I am and what I do. And um, so it doesn't, the narrative doesn't put you on one side or the other, like one of them was right or wrong, but it just sort of sets up that they just have these very different values and Octavia sort of watching that, you know, I think it was, um, it was interesting, the little moment when they're sparring and, you know, and she kind of, where I think we get a sense that like Gaia knows who Octavia is, has known who Octavia is, feels some sense of, you know, jealousy or resentment towards her mom, that her mom sort of went out and found herself a replacement kid, you know, even though I don't think that's how, how Indra intended it or that was not like, you know, that wasn't no, what she was no, doing, no. Yeah. but it also makes total sense why Gaia would view it that way, especially before she's met Octavia and gotten to know her. And especially if, if Gaia feels like, which I think was kind of, you know, seemed to be implied that the things that Indra valued about Gaia as a daughter were, you know, like her potential as basically like a warlord, you know? Right, right, exactly, and, yeah. And that, and, and so that like, so her mom, you know, her mom didn't see her because she didn't, she didn't understand, you know, her devotion to her faith, why that would be important. She, she valued these, like her abilities as a warrior, which Gaia doesn't value. And so you, she sees Octavia and Octavia is everything about, Octavia is everything that Gaia feels like are the only things that Indra had valued in her. And so I think there's that kind of sense of like, you know, like, yeah, like I think that that makes it feel like you've been replaced. Well, okay, I didn't, I wasn't the person that you wanted me to be, so you went out and found a person who would be that, you know, person to take my place. Which is obviously not what happened, but it's also like totally human under and understandable. Yeah, that she would feel that way, totally. you know, and and that kind of like pain of being so deeply misunderstood for both of them. I think it was like really, really palpable. I liked that it it kind of left us in a place where you feel like. Like, Octavia helped them take a step sort of back towards some kind of relationship with each other. That Octavia doing what she did and taking the risk of, you know, killing that guy and lying to Rowan and giving him the fake flame, you know, to in order to save Gaia and to protect Indra from having to, you know, to lose her daughter. I think that, you know, she took a big risk because I, it's pretty clear, you know, at, at some point, Rowan's going to figure out or someone's going to figure out that the real flame is still out there and that Gaia has it. And, you know, and so, but she really, you know, she put herself on the line to try to help these two people who clearly still love each other, you know, and to sort of move them a little closer, you know, back together. And, and I just love, um, I love what that says about who Octavia is as a person. And I love that little reminder that inside the, you know, like, swords and badassery and leather pants and casual beheadings like she's still you know she's still this person who has this huge heart and and can see good in people and and wants good for the people that she cares about you know even when things are really shitty and and so I also feel like in a tiny little way it was like indirectly there's so much in the way she approaches that situation that's about Bellamy yeah definitely I mean I I think I I would suspect that this, you know, sort of observing and being a part of this story with Indra and Gaia is going to be the kind of, like, the way that Octavia is able to sort of process and recontextualize her 
relationship with Bellamy and kind of like come back to him with a maybe as early as next week since it looks like he ends up back in Polis with a gag in his mouth. So like maybe maybe that's part of the <laughs> storyline next time. Yeah. Yeah, 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 maybe. Um, but yeah, but I really, I liked, yeah, I liked, we didn't get a ton in Polis, but I really liked to sort of, again, like the character driving plot, sort of how that all, you know, moved it forward. And I'm, and I'm just, I'm just so delighted that I was wrong about where Octavia's arc was, was heading. Like, I just really, yeah, I'm really enjoying it so far. Yes, me too. And I think, you know, I was going to say one other thing about um, the sort of reveal of Indra as, Indra having a daughter is I think it also does a nice in a kind of like you know a, a a way where like as you say we watch TV in the real world I think it's kind of cool that you know like Indra is not a character that we would stereotypically call maternal right mm-hmm. and so I think it's really cool to have like a female character who is like she's a warrior and she's a leader and she's you know and she is 100% committed to those roles to her people to you know to to her soldiers um to the commander you know um to have a character like that who has so many things that sort of culturally we tend to like really think of as kind of opposite of maternal and have her be a mother you know just as a kind of like busting stereotypes yeah and and that you know and and the little you know the teeny tiny little sort of flickers we get of you know of what kind of mother she was you know like when like when Octavia and Gaia are fighting and Gaia's kind of like joking about you know like Gaia knows all of Octavia's techniques because like obviously she yeah. was taught to fight by her mother you know and yeah um, right so it and and the fact that you know the fact that they're estranged to the degree that they are now and the fact they have all this sort of bad blood between them you know like there's still so much love there it's just like you know the way like the way indra shows affection is like you said like it's not you know she's not she's not a mom like abby as a mom you know where it's just like every child in the whole entire world needs to be hugged by me right now this minute and you know and if you do not have a mother who will hug you i will be your mother and i will hug you you know and um and indra basically just like here take the sword if you survive you're my child you know <laughs> and and it's also you know i was thinking about this too with with gaia kind of paralleled in an interesting way with um, the reveal that we got last episode and kind of fleshed out a little bit more this episode about Jaha being an engineer. You know, we have all these characters that we've known for a really long time that we sort of like met at a certain point and then the your relationship with that character moves forward. And we don't have backstory for a lot of those people the way we do for like the core characters, you know, who we've gotten flashbacks, who we know their families, who we know their stories. Um, and and so just little things like, you know, that Jaha was an engineer before he was a chancellor and that all along this whole time that we have known Indra, she has had this wound of this child who doesn't want to have a relationship with her or that she can't have a relationship with, you know, for whatever reason. Just sort of the, the, the way that that, makes us look at everything that we've learned about those characters a little bit differently because it has some sort of nuance and shading is really interesting. The The question of what Jaha knew when about the oxygen scrubbers is very different now that we know that he was an engineer, not just a career politician. Yeah. yeah. And so all those calculations they were making in season one about what, you know, carrying capacity and things like that, like 
he knows that he knew shit. that yeah he knew those things and and he so it, so it's just like this is this little thing and all of a sudden you're like whoa and it sort of opens up all of this space for all these other interpretations of the things we already knew you know to exist it's not really a retcon it's just sort of fleshing out you know the things sort of behind these choices and with indra you know like Going back and re-looking at, at the evolution of her relationship with Octavia, knowing that she, the part of why she is the way she is is because she's holding on to this loss, you know, and this, and this longing for, you know, like not, like you said, like not a replacement daughter, but like a longing for a relationship with somebody else like that. Because I think she also had, you know, she had that to some degree i think with lexa but she couldn't but lexa was her boss there's a little bit of that i think there, just in terms like the protectiveness you know and and the mentoring but lexa was the commander she can't be lexa's mom you know like she can't really like there are there are lines that she just sort of can't cross and so that she can sort of only go so far and no further um but with octavia you know who 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 really does who's sort of starting from the bottom and really needs to be mentored i think that she can you know, she has that, she clearly has that need and that longing to sort of, to, to be that person to somebody. And it's really moving because it gives us something that we don't really see much in Indra when we first meet her, which is like vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. she's all, you know, hard surfaces and total badassery, you know, and, and so seeing like, you know, what are the things that make these people who they are um, and just sort of like fleshing out their backstory and, um, you know, and, and also just it's also the kind of material that actors really like to sort of sink their teeth into, you know, like like letting letting Adina Porter, you know, get to sort of, you know, the the raw emotion that's behind that kind of like I'm a badass warrior mask getting to sort of seep through more in this episode than we've ever seen before is like I mean it's it's magnificent she's amazing um but it also you know it 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 retroactively sort of adds that color and texture to the whole of her relationship with you know with Octavia and Elizabeth characters and so I just yeah I just I I just, they're all like just three badass women, you know, and just really just like fun, <laughs> yes. fun to watch them like sort of sparring with each other and all the, yeah. The other piece of the Polo storyline, you know, we got is a teeny tiny bit of Ilion today, um, but setting up, I think, you know, again, sort of table setting for future conflict, something I'm really interested in that. And I guess we can we can come back to this more at the end, but like I, I think one of the things this episode did sort of as a whole was it really moved some pieces around for what I think are shaping up to be long term arcs that are tied to the whole sort of who survives and where and how and in what groupings and with what sort of like what the lifeboats are. And the two little hints I think that are in the Polis storyline that I think might play into that are one, if the if the sort of upshot of the Luna plot involves the need to find and round up all of the nightbloods you know so they can make vaccines or whatever then Gaia I think is sort of inevitably going to get pulled into that storyline in a way that could be really interesting yeah. because she's the only person you know who's going to know who they are where they are how to find them you know and um Luna Luna is the last one that they Noah, because all the rest of them died in the conclave. But if there are other, you know, 
unscouted nightblood kids or families that carry the genetic markers for nightblood or whatever, it it seems it seems like like the fact that she's introduced to us not just as a person who's a member of this religion, but that her job is that she's a nightblood scout in a time when finding people who have nightblood feels like pressingly urgent. I'm I'm gonna be interested to see um at what point, if at all, does she cross over into the kind of medical science storyline? Um, and then the other sort of interesting, I think, potential crossover that could have to do with that, we get a glimpse of this. I mean, I guess in its own way, it's kind of another kind of cult. Um, the sort of the the anti-technology people of Hamilion is, is one. But, um, but a number of people who we see in Polis who have kind of expanded their hatred of Allie and hatred of Sky Crew for bringing them Allie into this idea that all technology as a whole is is dangerous and terrible, which is sort of an, an existing grounder belief that they've had. And I think we're sort of seeing that really sharpening into like militancy with this storyline. So what's interesting about that then is how will those people react if it does end up that at least part of the solution to the end of the world is going to involve them having to get like sky crew vaccinations, you know, like is, is there objection to or resistance to the idea of, you know, of technology and their assumption that it's sort of fundamentally bad and evil in a story where we know that basically technology is the only thing that's going to sort of save these people's lives. It's sort of like another you know, it's another hurdle to clear for Clark that she doesn't even know about yet in in her quest to try to find a way to save as many people as possible, including the grounders. And not only that, but that we also know that they're facing any number of like really high level technical problems in terms of getting all their different lifeboats, whatever they are, you know, lifeboat is in like the arc. So actual physical or bunkers, you know, like physical locations um medical lifeboats like the the night blood issue so if when you have like a group of of like sort of fanatic uh, of like grounder fanatics sort of like leading people into this really intense anti-technology cult and going around and actually destroying technology like i wonder at what point if we're going to run into a problem where they are they need a piece of technology that has either been destroyed by these people or that those people are, have found and are about to destroy and they have to try to talk them out of it. Um, so sort of like introducing a, another set of future sort of uh, complications. Yeah, and I, and I think it's interesting to sort of, you know, that we're seeing right now, everything still feels, you know, it's sort of geographically separated. There's like Arcadia stuff and Polis stuff. But I do think that we're getting seeds planted of all of the different ways in which you know, at a certain point, all of these different threads are really going to kind of converge and come to a head in a way that that seems, you know, that seems like it's sort of setting up a really fascinatingly kind of like seemingly insurmountable conflict, yeah. you know, and what's it going to take to convince Ilion that technology in and of itself is morally neutral, Yeah, you know, yeah. and that technology only is good or bad based on the motivations of and the actions of the person who is using right. it. Right. That's just a tool that is not inherently this is a tool. either evil or good. Yeah. And so I think that that's something where I feel like the, you know, the mentality that technology itself is a fundamental evil, which again, we see like, you know, mirrors what we hear from Bill Cadigan mirrors. Like that's a, you know, the belief that like the machines will turn on you, you know, um, it, 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 
perfectly makes sense based on who these people are and what happened to them and the trauma that they suffered, you know, from Allie. Like, it's a, it's a completely comprehensible worldview. And also, we're already seeing, like, three episodes into the season where you're like, this is going to, like... At some point in the not too distant future, it's going to become a huge problem that they're literally just going to be roaming around this world, destroying everything. Yeah. And I also think that, I mean, Gaia is going to be, create conflict down the road too, because, you know, she knows how to find Nightbloods. But again, it's a problem of her fanaticism, you know, where she, like her fervent belief in her faith is going to, I think present a barrier to convincing her to help them find Nightbloods not to put the flame in anybody, you know, not to find a commander, not to have a conclave, right? but to, you know, like use them in, in like scientific experiments to try to figure out how to you how to make everyone a Nightblood. Like, I think that'll be the challenge for Gaia because like her entire faith is built around this. I think this idea like being a scout, you're going around trying to find these semi-miraculous children who have all been sort of like chosen seemingly at random by the sort of commander spirit to be potential commanders who will then be sort of chosen by the commander spirit to be the commander. You know, so there seems to be a kind of like mystic sort of mysticism around Nightbloods. And so, so I mean, like imagine that. Imagine like her entire life. Like she she doesn't have a family. You know, she lost her mother because she chose her faith in that over what Indra wanted. So imagine being Gaia when somebody says to her, oh, hey, we have to make everyone a Nightblood. It's really, it's just genetic engineering. It's just technology. It's just this thing that we've, we know how to do, you know. Um, and so it's not special. We're going to take this thing that's special and mystical and we're going to make it everybody. Like that's going to be, I think that's going to be like a humongous yeah. Uh, you know, like that's going to be like a crisis for Gaia and I think that maybe it'll be she might resist that. Well, and and you know, or or in a which and I hope and I hope this isn't where the story goes, but it is possible that like is one of the things that has to happen like human trials on a nightblood. Yeah. Not not like maybe not killing and harvesting them like they did in Matt Weather, although like I mean, if they need, if they need, like, you know, uh, bone marrow. Right, if they need bone marrow, you know, like, which you can take bone marrow from somebody without killing them, but it hurts them. And it's, it requires technology that, that Nightblood children aren't going to understand, which is going to be perceived as being fundamentally evil by, you know, like, if there's a sort of growing anti-technology cult, you know. So I feel like, like, the idea of, like you said, like, either... If the solution is that everyone gets, you know, if they man- if they manufacture some kind of synthetic night blood serum and they want to just inject it in everybody, then the crisis there is that, you know, it's like finding, it's like a miracle when they find a new night blood and now it's just kind of like, you know, we're taking the miracle away from you. Or alternately, you know, is it these, these people, you know, these children that she views as like the most sacred beings in existence because they have the capacity to like commune with the spirits of the commanders and Abby wants to drill holes into their bone and extract their marrow for something that guy doesn't fully understand. Yeah. You know, like it just yeah, feels yeah. like there's a, there's a lot of different ways where, you know, where again, like there's, there isn't a right or a wrong. It's just totally different conflicting sets of values, but it's creating these, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of moving the pieces around for some really interesting kind of cultural clashes you know, I think when the conflict comes, it's going to get sort of messy and ugly and explosive really quickly. And, you know, and it may end up being that because of that, the Nightblood thing 
ends up being a total non-starter. Yeah, yeah, like they can't they can't actually pull it off because of, because they run up against all these issues. Yeah. Or or they or they get, you know, or Luna cooperates and they're like, "Okay, we have enough vaccinations for like 12 people." You know. Or or it becomes a it becomes a question of like we we can, you know, make fix 50 vaccinations and keep Luna alive. Or if Luna dies, we can vaccinate everyone in Arcadia. You know, like a question, something like that. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and Luna being a person who kind of embodies this belief that, you know, the ends don't justify the means. Yeah. You yeah. know, um, and I think makes that makes that itself a particularly interesting conundrum because that is not a choice that Luna's belief system would ever allow her to make. You know, and so her being on the other side yeah, of it. Yeah, it's like, but it's the one life for for the many issue right. again. And like that, that would be interesting because I could see that being a situation where that would reverse roles between, like for Abby, you know, where like I could see Abby kind yeah. of like flipping around and saying like, anyway, so, so yeah, so I think I can see, I mean, this is why this is so odd, like this, this little bit with um the introduction of Gaia into the story is so great because like there's all these like it opens up tons and tons of possibility for like really really interesting character driven theme driven conflict that could develop the plot in a whole bunch of ways that's like super exciting I also was I was thinking about her before we move on from Gaia I was thinking about her name and I think it's really interesting you know so like Gaia of course means earth I think it's really interesting that they named her Gaia, you know, because like, because especially like, like Gaia, you know, like Gaia doesn't just mean earth, but it kind of means like, like earth, like mother earth in a kind of like, right, quasi spiritual sort of like holistic kind of sense, which makes sense for that character and in the kind of like spiritual sort of person that she is. But I think, I don't know, but I I think it's really interesting because like, you know, given the state that the earth is in right now in the show um it sort of like complicates like we think of guy you think of like I, you know i think of like you know green forests and wild creatures and you know and right. harmonious systems and all that crap which is in contrast with what's happening in the show right now where like the earth itself is becoming barren as you know cannot you know soon will not be able to support life where like the earth right. itself is kind of like becoming the enemy yeah. And there's an open question as to whether the Earth, whether they're, they're going to be able to find a way to survive on Earth or whether the Earth is going to be able to, like, whether the planet is going to be able to recover from this, you know? And I can see it kind of going both ways with Gaia, where she could either be, you know, where that name could either be kind of an emblem of this Earth become enemy, or she could be, depending on which way the story goes, she could become an emblem of, like, kind of, like, hints for future rebirth you know that well that was sort of i think that was kind of how i how i interpreted it was like i was sort of looking at it like is is the reason that this is her name and the reason that she sort of introduced like this because in some metaphorical way either she herself will be or she will be the person who sort of helps them find the key to some some piece of helping humanity survive you know and and either you know like maybe it has to do with finding nightbloods maybe it's some other completely different thing maybe it's the flame coming back into play in a way where they're able to use it for technology you know like i don't know but but it made me wonder like is she being set up in some way to be a part of whatever that like kind of last flicker of hope 
you know, that, that at some point in the future this can be, like, rebuilt. Yeah, and I imagine, I imagine that she is, I think, because... You know, because I think thematically also, in addition to plot-wise, it's not a coincidence that she's Indra's daughter, you know, because, like, what are children? Like, they're, they're, are the, they're the guarantee of the continuation of human life. So to have her be Indra's daughter, she's like the ne- that next generation. She's like Indra carrying forward, you know? So there's, like, something about her yeah, and yeah, yeah. That, that, that relationship being emphasized, with she's, which suggests that she's kind of, like, emblematic of kind of a chance for a way forward maybe shall we um hop over to arcadia and talk about medical ethics yes (laughs) you've been dying to talk about medical ethics since like the second episode of last season and then it was cruelly ripped away from us i know and i and i really feel like this episode did give me something that was kind of the realization of a year-long dream that began last season, which is Abby and Nyko's hospital, yeah. which was which was one of the beautifully launched and then kind of randomly abandoned plot threads last season that sort of seemed to like like introduce like it was going to be a thing that kind of never went anywhere and you know and not clear whether they sort of like backed out and changed their mind was it setting up something that was like a much longer long game was it something that the story was supposed to go one direction and then you know and then Lincoln died and that like was there supposed to be more Lincoln that so I so so it was never quite clear like kind of what happened with that but I was I was fascinated by what it felt like was sort of setting up of this kind of the Mount Weather hospital question you know the ethics of using a place that is so traumatic to these grounders using supplies that were used to torture them um as a way to heal them and the kind of complicated ethical questions of that you know is there a right and a wrong to it regardless of whether there is a right and a wrong how will people feel about it how will the sky people feel how will grounders feel they don't have a ton of time together but but every time you know, something happens where Abby and Nico are sort of in the scene together and you're sort of reminded in their own way, like that they're like their peers, you know, like that Nico, Nico is for tree crew what Abby is for sky crew and, and that Nico's kind of fundamental trust in Abby and in sky crew medicine and to sort of, he has a different understanding thing of technology and, you know, and of what they have, of, of sort of sky crews he's not afraid of it you know he understands it as a tool he's like they have medical yeah they have tools that make it possible for them to to heal people in ways that i can't you know and he's so he doesn't have that kind of sense of like superstition about it yeah and and so the beginning of season three you know when he when he shows up wounded you know he like he knows like the only person who can fix him is abby his own healers can't fix him you yeah. know and um and so i and so i like you know even though it's just it's a you know, and it's so subtle. It's like, you know, he's he's there in season two for the shock lashing scene when she brings Lincoln back to life. He's there, you know, a little bit in season three when we see that, like, you know, that he brings the sick grounders to Abby and she's healing them and that's how they all end up, you know, like they're with Lincoln. So, like, it's just, it isn't a fleshed out relationship, but it's sort of a little bit of kind of background world building between the two of them. And so the idea, you know, that this is the place that he would bring these people because if anyone can fix them, it's, you know, it's Sky Crew Medicine, and he doesn't know that they're having to ration it, you know. So so I like that it sort of, that it, it felt a little bit like, I guess in an indirect way, picking up a thread that I was really disappointed that they dropped, and so it was nice to sort of see it come back again, which is the question of the ethics, the ethical choices that doctors are put in the position of, you know, where, like, you really do literally have to decide 
who lives and dies. Yeah. You know, it's a very like every every day every day that doctors go to work, it's a very like literal concrete manifestation of that kind of big abstract moral choice that we sort of see playing out in all these different little storylines. And for Abby and for Jackson, the person who's right in front of them is the person that they're the most focused on. And tomorrow's problems are for tomorrow, you know, which, you know, they're doctors, like that's what they do, you know, and, and, um, you know, Sachin talked about this a little bit when we were at UDA is about, you know, his perspective of who Jackson is as a person is like, you know, like the Hippocratic Oath is who Jackson is. Saving who you can save and helping who you can help is like what defines him as a person, you know, and he learned, learned that from Abby. And so, so immediately sort of, smashing that kind of that storyline that worldview that desire to help that connection between abby and nico that the fact that it's luna the fact that it, you know it's a person that we know that it's a child it's a child that we have met um you know all of these sort of forces butting up against the fact that you know what we have just heard from raven and clark and bellamy is you know is just how dire of a situation they're in in terms of resources like even to keep the hundred people in the arc alive, let alone anybody else, you know, they are, they're sort of up against it. And so I was really fascinated, you know, you kind of know from the beginning, you're like, there's no, <laughs> there's no good choice. You know, like there's just, there's no, there's no choice that isn't awful because either, either you're consciously making the choice to let these people die right now in front of you, or you are creating a situation where later down the line, you will need these things and you won't have them. And, and Raven, you know, Raven and, and Abby's relationship is so rich and beautiful and complicated. You know, like there's so much affection between them, but also like they've been on opposite sides of, you know, of the fence for like, uh, you know, most of last season really. And, and so sort of seeing them kind of going head to head here and seeing Abby at, you know, at peak Abby, you know, that there's a child dying and, um, and Raven is still like, look, you know, we have like, you can't use a quarter of our, you know, like, and Raven's, Raven's not wrong. You know, yeah. like, they're not telling us that Raven is a bad person. Like Raven is like, we have X amount of anti-radiation medication. It has to last a hundred people for five years. This is a quarter of our supply. You don't know that it will work. And also, you know, the thing that's sort of like implied, but not said is like, those aren't our people. She doesn't, she wasn't on the rig. She doesn't have a relationship with Luna, you know, in the same way. And she doesn't have the same visceral kind of emotional connection and relationship to the grounders that Clark does from the time that she spent with them. She's kind of like, you know, you gave me a job and I'm doing it. And that means, no, you can't have this medicine. And so what was really just so, just brutal about about Raven in this episode and in that storyline was watching her going from like, like watching her lose the ability to see these people as abstractions, to see the medicine as like items on an inventory list, you know, and she still has to make the same set of decisions that she has to make. Like she still has to, ration the medication she still has to you know be the person who's saying no you can't have this no you can't have this no you can't have this you know you get one meal every other day for five years like she still is that person but she she we watch her sort of shifting her worldview around it when she's watching you know when she's watching a child die well i think that part of what's happening there you know i like everyone in that scene 
just does such a great job. But I think, you know, to me, the kind of main point of that arc for Raven in this episode, like you said, it's not to, sh- to show that she was wrong before or that Abby was right. You know, I don't think that's the point. I think they both had points. Um, and I also don't think that it was, you know, to like show that, that Raven has a heart because we didn't know that before. Like, you know, we all know that Raven feels things very, right. very deeply. And like, I don't think anybody, you know, the point wasn't to be like, Raven cares about children too. But I think like, one really important point is like, so if you think about where the episode started versus where it ended for um, Raven, you know, we start the episode with um, her and Bellamy and Clark, which by the way, like I was just like so thrilled that, you know, we keep starting with like Raven Lark as like the, the leadership unit mm-hmm. all together. You know, we get those first debates between the three of them and especially between Raven and Clark about rationing about the fact that they're like there's less and less food coming in, you know, so they're they're facing tighter and tighter restrictions on their future stores. And at one point, see, she sort of, you know, she keeps pressing Clark, "Did you make the list? Did you make the list? Did you make the list? We have to make this list," you know. And I, and at one point, she says to Clark, "You asked me to be in charge of rationing, so I'm doing it. But you're the one. But you, you know, your specialty is deciding who lives and who dies." And I think like that that scene where Raven is watching, you know, seeing all those grounders die and watching that little girl die I think maybe part of the point of that scene was to kind of drive home for Raven like where she started at the beginning saying to Clark you gave me a job and it's rationing and I'm doing the job but you Clark are the one who makes decisions about who lives and who dies that was like Raven was still kind of like operating under a false dichotomy like she still at the beginning believed there's you who makes these decisions and there's me who carries out this like particular action. She was giving herself a little bit of an out, I think. And then she realized, you know, and, and Abby tells her straight out. She's like, you know, like Raven's like, well, they're going to, they'll be dead in two months anyway. And Abby's like, okay, but like Black Rain isn't killing these people. You're killing these people. Yeah. Which is like, which is a harsh way of saying, you know, like, I, I think, you know, it's one of those lines where like, I think, I know, I, I think I saw, you know, on Twitter, a couple of people didn't like it. I think it's because it sort of maybe comes across like it's supposed to be like the show saying that. I don't think so. I think that's Abby, like a characteristically Abby way. Like you can imagine Abby saying that to Kane in season one. Like that's an Abby oh, yeah. thing to say. Yeah, yeah. But like what, what the, the point, the message that she's making is like, the, you are making a choice to let these people die. Like you have decided that they are going to die today instead of theoretically dying later. But, like, you know, so so Abby's kind of, like, hitting home, like, your choice right now, your choice, Raven, right in this moment, is for them to die. You are deciding who's living and who's dying. And I think, like, this is this is the kind of, like, we had to have that, she had to have that confrontation with Abby, and then she had to walk in that room and sort of watch the consequences of her choice to realize, to sort of, like, move from that that lingering belief, I think, left over from the position she's been in for a long time, where there is there are those who make the decisions of between who lives and who dies, and then there's her who carries out the kind of, like, practical aspects of it. But those are, but she is not one of them to realize, no, she is now one of the people who makes decisions about who lives and who dies. It's She's not just a functionary anymore. Yeah, she's not just, like, the hand. Yeah, she's also, yeah. you know, she's sort of, like... You know, and it's and it taps a little bit at the the thread that kind of came up in the last episode too, where she says like, "I'm not the chief." You know, Raven is Raven's not used to being where the buck stops. Yes, and and we've seen this thing with a lot of different characters. You know, we have 
you have Clark and Bellamy, and then and then in varying degrees also I think the adults, you know, Kane and Abby and Jaha, who who are or who have frequently found themselves in a position of having to make absolutely terrible choices where characters who haven't been in those situations people like raven people like jasper people like octavia are often really critical of the choice they made critical of the outcome critical of how could you do that without having been in that position and really deeply down to their bones understanding that there wasn't another good option there was only different bad options and you sort of do the best that you can you know and so i think that if, if for nothing else, then sort of showing us that Raven, I think, has a different perspective now on the burden of the thing that she's been sort of demanding that Clark do in making this list. She's not wrong that they need it. She's not wrong that they need a plan and protocols and who's going to get the guns and, you know, like, like, that's all like, yes, but also the human cost of that on the person who has to do that thing, you know? And so I think, I think that competition between Abby and Raven was really important because I think that there are times when there are difficult things that Raven needs to hear. And the only person who can say them to her sometimes is Abby, you know, sort of similar to their big, you know, their kind of headbutting last episode or last season about like Raven rejecting the surgery. Um, and so this felt like a little bit kind of shades of that, you know, and they're, and they're ugly moments of confrontation because like, these people clearly love each other. They're very close. They have a really close relationship. Um, and it's difficult to watch them, you know, at odds. But they also, you know, it's again, it's a it's a clash of values, you yeah. know. And, and, and they're approaching this crisis from these sort of diametrically opposed points. So, so yeah, I don't, I don't feel like the narrative is, is villainizing either of those perspectives. I think Abby said the Abby Griffin thing to say and Raven said the Raven Ray's thing to say and it felt like it was all it didn't feel like the show delivering a thesis it felt like two real human beings you know being human beings and once again plot being driven by character you know like plot being driven by character right like like this is a conflict this is a sort of inherent conflict that's going to come up when Raven who has not been in this leadership position moves into it when she runs up against Abby who's always going to do what Abby does you know like again like this keeps they just keep it keeps happening and it keeps being awesome yeah (laughs) it's beautiful it's beautiful yeah um and and also and i think because it is so deeply and this i think i was thinking about this watching the episode when i when i rewatched it again this afternoon i think the biggest difference to me between season four and season three so far is that i think because everything is driven by by character by by these people behaving like the most sort of clearly articulated versions of themselves um everything is excruciating yeah like everything <laughs> is so impossibly difficult to watch and makes you feel so emotional in a way where a lot of things happened last season that i felt like i i'm i'm receiving this as information that i don't feel emotions about because i haven't been guided along the way with the sort of emotional groundwork being laid that i needed to have be like like i was i was mad that gina died because i felt like it was handled in such a like um in a way where it was like okay this is transparently setting up an emotional arc for bellamy this really feels like a fridging this feels like the way the camera is sort of lingering on the bloodthirstiness feels really voyeuristic like i'm i'm unsettled and uncomfortable and i don't like it but it didn't like make me want to cry yeah like it didn't it wasn't it wasn't like a visceral emotional gut punch the way watching 
Luna comforting this dying girl and watching everybody in the room watching this happening again as this as these sort of peak versions of themselves you know like like we know exactly what Nico is seeing when he's looking at it we know exactly what's happening emotionally for Murphy you know and for Jackson and for Abby and for Clark when she walks in and then we also see it for Raven you know and that just like naked devastation on Lindsay Morgan's beautiful perfect angelic face when <laughs> you know when she's watching you know when Murphy's like holding her back and she and she comes in you know ready to be pissed at Abby and and what she walks into this is the real consequences of you know other choices that they're making it isn't an abstraction um and the reason that I that I just every single piece of it you know like the, that scene Clark making the list like all of these things just just land with this horrifying emotionally devastating gut punch that just makes you want to just curl up in a ball and rock back and forth and cry is because it's so rooted in who these people are and in in the way that we know them the best you know they can shorthand a lot of these things because we know these characters so well and it's all coming from who they are you can't you can't get any kind of like narrative distance from it you know the way like things Things ha- like sort of the, you know, some of the big skills that happened last season sort of felt like, okay, so we're just, we're moving chess pieces around into play. And so this has to happen and this has to happen. So you got to kill all these people. So then Piking over here and you're like, oh, okay. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, like with Gina, which Gina's death didn't feel like it was the consummation or, you know, it was like, it had anything to do with Gina. She was just like, here is a body that we have been telling you in sort of like really kind of standard ways like she's an important person why don't worry about it she's just important oh dead you know like it felt very kind of instrumental rather right than, right rather than personal and I think that's why it was like it was hard to watch but not really like in the sense where like you felt like a loss of Gina just so much because it felt like yeah kind of as opposed to you know like when we lost like Lincoln you know where it felt much more like you felt felt like more attached to that loss I think the 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 biggest coolest sort of structural thing that happened in that storyline you know this episode really I think was continuing to to sort of build up and heighten the stakes of the the conflict between the necessity like the real hard necessity of making who lives and who dies choices and how it feels to do that, you know? Yeah, and I think, yeah. you know, like when, like when Raven, you know, when Raven kind of throws in Clark's face at the beginning, you know, like this is what you do. You're like deciding who lives and dies is your specialty. You know, I, I think that the thing that she hasn't factored in is like pulling the lever in Mount weather to irradiate the residents of Mount weather is not the same as going down the list of every individual human being in Arcadia who she knows and putting yes or no next to their name. Yeah. None of it's an abstraction. It's not it's not a mass death. It's a hundred separate individual choices. Yeah. And that's different. That's not a thing that Clark's had to do before in the same way. And even though it from the outset, without having been in that position, it looks the same to Raven. Yeah, well, and Raven also hasn't seen, like, Raven wasn't in the room with Monty and Bellamy when they pulled the lever in Mount Weather, you know? And and Raven Raven hasn't sort of, like, been with Clark when she, Clark was making these choices, you know? Yeah. Uh, about, you know, quote-unquote, who lives and who dies. And Clark is so, has, has, like, she wasn't around Raven very much last season, so Raven didn't really see her process 
or, or not processing that weather thing. They were separated for most of season two. You know, so like Raven also just, and, and Clark doesn't really like sort of wear that on her sleeve. Like she doesn't really kind of right, right, exactly. let yeah. her vulnerability show with Raven. So I think Raven, like a lot of characters, you know, like like Jasper to some extent, I think kind of looks at Clark and see like she looks fine. So they sort of assume that right. she does this and she's fine with it. You know, and Raven, so has, Raven has like, no conception of the difference between the choices she has made and, the, and you know, the difference in, in making a list. She has no conception of what Clark has actually felt or what she continues to feel about these choices. And then also it's just like if you haven't done it, you can't conceive of how it feels. You know, like she's never exactly. had to make yeah. that decision. So, yeah, so I think you're right. So I think this is like really a story about, like, learning how it feels to make that choice. And, like, that moment with that, like, that close-up on her face is, like, this is Raven learning what it feels like, a, a tiny sliver of what it feels like to be the person who's making these choices. And and the thing that's that's so awful about that is that doesn't alleviate the burden on Raven to continue making those choices yeah. about food rationing and medicine and things like that, except that now she is doing it with the full weight of the fact that every single one of those people is a human life, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I think that she was kind of giving herself a little bit of permission to distance herself from that a little bit, or, or, you know, or at least maybe sort of telling herself that 400 people are going to die when they close the doors, when the black rain comes. And at least it won't be my fault. You know, like, like I think she right. thinks of herself as part of, as like, my job is to keep a hundred people alive Instead of my job is to choose 400 people who are going to get killed. You know, I think that she's flipped. She's thinking of it very strategically. Yeah. And, and also she knows that she's going to be one of those 100 people who's alive. She's exactly. never had to think yeah. for a second she wasn't going to be on that list. You know, so that also is yeah, a very, exactly. very different relationship. And I think, you know, when she's talking to Clark about, like, we need to have protocols, we need to have drills, we need to, like, decide who has guns, we need to decide how we're going to deal with those people freaking out when they realize they're not going to be inside. You know, like, that's also a very kind of depersonalized. Like, she's talking about the emotional reaction from people who just found out they've been sentenced to death as this right. kind of, like, logistical problem. Right. We, we need to make sure we're safe from them. Yeah. Well, and also just, like, like she's thinking about it kind of like an engineer. You know, like, we have a problem. The problem is people are going to react to this. How are we going to solve this problem? Which is totally understandable and logical, but also just very much, like, detached from the fact that you're talking about human beings who are reacting to being sentenced to death, you know? And, like, very detached from the fact that, like, when that happens, you might have to look them in the eyes knowing that you're killing them, you know? Like, she's never had to, th to conceptualize it in that way. And I don't think, yeah. like you said, like, she doesn't realize that Clark is conceptualizing it in that way. Um, and she probably, you know, she, she really couldn't until she saw that scene in the med bay, and then suddenly she's like, okay, this time's 400. I think that was a lesson that she really needed to learn because I think that there are times where she, like you said, like, like, Everyone looks at Clark and thinks that the fact that she makes these decisions because she has to, that it's easy for her in some way. You know, like Jasper, there's a moment in, in Nevermore where, um, you know, when Jasper, when he sees what she's, you know, like, sees her seeing Raven, he's saving Raven, you know, taking the chip out of her neck, and um, and he he hands her back the flame, which he was going to destroy, and, you know, he basically says, like, you know, like, I could I could never do, I could never do what you do. And and there's an element of, I, I think... It's like, it's like half admiration, half terror, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, it's half like, 
how the hell are you a human being able to just kind of make these choices? Like, I know that I couldn't do it. You know, it's, it's one of like, those, like, backhanded compliments is also, I feel like he's saying something like, I'm glad a monster like you exists and it's not me. Yeah. You know? No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like I, I acknowledge the necessity of somebody doing these things, but also, like, holy shit. Yeah, yeah. I think really except for Bellamy and except for the other adults who we've sort of seen having been in this position themselves, um, I think there are a lot of people who at very different times have a hard time seeing with compassion the cost of the choices the Clark has to make. Yeah. You know, and and even Bellamy, you know, I think it took him a while to get it. Like it makes sense why he why he viewed her leaving at the end of season two as that she was like failing on him you know abandoning him like it took him a while to kind of come around to sort of not feeling like you left me personally you know like that that was just sort of how she was you know like because like of course he reacted that way you know and um and so you know so i think the thing that's really isolating for her is that she does these things because she has to because no one else is going to do them because she's the person who circumstance keeps putting over and over and over again into this position where she's the only person who can make these choices and i think that we've seen over the course of four seasons, a lot of the other delinquents, like a lot of the people who haven't, who have the luxury of never having to make those choices, be like, wow, Clark, what a bitch. Like, wow, I can't believe <laughs> yeah. you did this horrible thing. Like, oh my God, you're just a monster. And it's like, okay, well, like, what, all right, what were you going to do then? You know, yeah. like, like Jasper, like Jasper, I love you, but you are not going to be able to shank Cage Wallace and save everybody in that prison cell. Like I, like that's, that wasn't that you wasn't know. actually a, a tenable plan, you know what? I I, I so, <laughs> so a little a little like smidgen of Blark flailing before we get to the main event <laughs> later on. But like <laughs> go on. But like speaking of, I mean, I think you know one of the the really the, one of the things that makes Clark's relationship with Bellamy so important to both of them going all the way back to season one and so unique is that going all the way back to Adam in what episode three when Adam is dying of exposure to the acid fog and Bellamy knows what he needs to do is to you know mercy kill him and he can't bring himself to do it and Clark takes the knife away and does it you know I think that was the first time Clark has decided you know the first person that Clark has killed before Bellamy has even killed anybody, it's the first time she's decided whether someone's going to live or die. And the first time she's, you know, she's, she's sort of taken that upon herself. And Bellamy, in that moment, recognizes that, recognizes her doing that as a gift. Like, he's sort of in awe of her because she can do this thing that he can't, that, um, that he didn't think that she could. But I think he also recognizes that what she does is a gift, not just to Adam, but to him. And I think... Basically, you know, that that side of sets the pattern for like Bellamy being the only person who consistently throughout the entire series is able to recognize what Clark is doing when she's making these decisions. And that is he recognizes that she's giving a gift to other people who can't do it by taking it on herself. And so like that's what makes it, you know, like that's the kind of like that like special sort of intimacy and understanding that they've always had. That, like, I think where she can be sort of, like, let her guard down with him more than anybody else because he really sees her and exactly what she's doing and understands how hard it is and can kind of, like, give her the support 
and recognition and, you know, and validation and, and permission to hurt from that without condemning her. Yeah. And because he has, you know, he has faith in her that, and, and we, you know, and, and it's, and we see it mirrored back the other direction too. Like, you know, Bellamy has faith in Clark that if Clark decides she's going to do something that drastic and extreme, he he trusts that she's weighed the options and, you know, run out the clock and every other thing is off the table and this is what she has to do. Yeah, because he trusts her values. He trusts that she will always, always, always try to find another way to save people first. And if, she, yeah. if she's decided that they have to do, you know, do the terrible thing, take lives to do it, then he trusts that that is definitely the last resort. Yeah, and that what she needs from him in those moments is not another person being like, what the fuck, Clark, you crazy murderer, what are you doing? What he, what she needs in those moments when she has to do those things is for somebody to be like, you know, to like stand next to her and like hold her hand and make sure that she knows that she's not alone and, and do the best that he can to kind of you know, shoulder at least part of that burden and that what she doesn't need, which she tends to get a lot from other people is sort of, you know, instant questioning of her motives or like, why didn't you try this? Or I can't believe, you know, and, and so he's the one who's like, he's there. Yeah. And he'll say like, it had to be done or he'll say like mm-hmm. who we are and who, what we need to do to survive are two different things. You know, he kind of gives her that reassurance, like the way that, that this looks or feels the way that people were interpreted. That's not what it is. And that's not who you are. You know, like I see right, you right. for what you, for the choice that you made and the reasons you made it. And, and, you know, and feel what you need to feel about that choice, but also know that like, you know, if you think that was the right choice, then I think it was the right choice and I trust you, you know, yeah. and, um, and it for him too. You know, I think what's really, what's really moving about their partnership in this episode you know the way that he's the person who really sees what these decisions cost her and and that for both of them you know sort of I think at at every turn they're really guided by putting putting each other's needs first in a way that like nobody else really does that for Clark yeah it just their their relationship is so beautiful and and it makes you feel a little bit like you know she gets like she gets all this heat from Raven you know just like sort of up in her face and being like make this list make this list and you're just like you like can you like can you give her a minute like this is like the most horrible thing you've ever asked her to do in her whole fucking life she's still 19 years old she knows all 400 she's like 18 she's like barely over she's like 18 in five months or something oh yeah it's just it's just like the only thing that makes those things sort of feel you know feel bearable is that the show is so much about and this season is so much about the way relationships um and community and and these little sort of family units are like the only thing that can make the sort of nightmare hellscape of trying to survive this apocalypse feel like it's even worth bothering to try to survive yeah you know and 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 that gives you the strength to kind of keep making these terrible terrible decisions over and over again and i and i so i really think that you know i think what's going to be really interesting in the you know in terms of what this episode did to kind of set up the long arc for some of these characters you know i'm really intrigued to see where Raven goes next now that she's been in a position where she can't hide behind abstractions and she also can't I think do the like 
you know, like the sort of mildly xenophobic thing that we sort of see playing in through a lot of um, the kind of Sky Crew Grounder stuff where it's like, it's not explicitly stated that part of why she's resistant to giving these medications, giving the medicine to Luna is because like Luna and her people aren't on the list, but it's, but she kind of says it, you know, like she kind of says like, they're going to be dead in two months. Like we're not saving Luna. There's no room for Luna in this bunker. Right. You know, and so I, I think, you know, knowing what we know now from what's in the trailers, you know, about what happens in the next episode, that this is the one where we get Abby and Jackson and Raven and Nico and Luna and, um, Miller, I think. And, um, you know, on, and Murphy and Amori on Amori's boat going to wherever it is that they go with sort of whatever their plan is. That's clearly something to do with, you know, something, something, the night blood solution. Cause Luna's with them. Um, I'm really interested in kind of is Raven's, um, relationship to, the choices that she's making different, you know, like, is she, is she newly motivated in a different way to kind of expand her thinking past like just grim bare minimum mechanics of survival for a hundred people. And that's kind of all I can think about right now because I have to patch the ship moving more towards like, you know, we're going to try something crazy that could end up backfiring horribly. Then we've lost a bunch of time or could be the solution to save everybody. And she wasn't willing to kind of make those big Clark and Abby Griffin kind of insane leap of faith decisions before she was very granular. She was very like, I'm literally counting how much deer jerky we have. Right. You yeah, know? yeah. And that's, that's where I'm at in terms of decision-making. So yeah. So I'm, so I'm interested to kind of see how what happened in this episode changes her you know i think i think she um i think that story really like this storyline really tapped into you know it was a big murphy arc it was a big abby arc jackson's back which is very exciting um and obviously the clark and luna relationship you know was a huge part of it luna as a person but really it felt like the kind of through line for that the person who changed over the course of that storyline was raven yeah no i think so too she's the one who was sort of like moving from one kind of starting position to a different place by the end of the episode. Should we talk about Murphy and Amori while we're still, since they're yeah. kind of, uh, they, they dovetail with that storyline. I know, you know, speaking of like an episode where the choices that everyone makes at every point are, are like thoroughly informed by who they are and who they, what we know about them the callback to Murphy's backstory, you know, that his uh, his dad was floated for stealing medicine for him. You know, it made that that choice that, you know, that this, this like, sort of plot-changing choice that Murphy made to steal the medicine to give to Abby, it made it, like, such a, like, a thoroughly Murphy, only Murphy could make that choice choice, not just because he's the thief, but because, you know, this is all tied up in these, like, really formative events for him. It it feels like what I liked about that moment for him is that Murphy being Murphy, it's like his motivations are so complicated. There's like yeah. there's like nine different factors in Murphy playing into that choice. So yeah. like on on one purely, you know, like Murphy does whatever he needs to do to survive level. There's an extent to which he's not not attempting to either manipulate or at least get a particular reaction out of Abby. 
Right. Like he said, he goes back to the cave and he tells Amori, I'm already working on it. Like, like I'm working on Abby, you know? So, so that's like, that's, so that's real. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But, but also Abby's affection for Murphy is genuine and he feels that even if I don't think he reciprocates it yet, but he certainly respects her in a way where we haven't really seen, you know, none of the other adults have really impressed him that much. And so he isn't, I think, deceiving her in a manipulative way. And also, I think that, you know, the the thing you can't really get away from is, like, he's motivated altruistically all along by the fact that, like, you know, like, not just selfishly for him, but also for Imori. Yeah. This is, like, their, their only chance of survival is to, you know, is to make themselves useful and indispensable enough to somebody on the decision-making panel, like, you know, like Abby and Clark, presumably, um, to make sure that they're, you know, that they're on the A-list when they figure this out. So so it is, you know, again, it's like, it's Murphy does what Murphy needs to do to survive, but it's also like, there's no other option for Amori. You know, Amori will be instantly dead if they, you know, if he can't take her with them. So there's that, like, kind of level of complexity to it, too. But then also that reminder that we get from Jackson about what happened to Murphy's father makes you feel like he is not doing this just to get Abby to like him so he can get in the door he is driven by like something that's a lot more I think kind of emotional and primal than that and because it's Murphy who doesn't like do vulnerability it's like I don't think like Murphy would not necessarily acknowledge that that's part of the motivation for why he did what he did it's almost impossible to parse out how much how much of it is actual just like straight up strategic thinking and how much of that that strategic approach is like plausible deniability for this like purely sort of like deeply emotional response and sort of instinct that he has well and i i think to me what what makes me feel like i i lean towards it being i mean better than 50 50 on the side of genuine emotion is that like the way that he responds to um to Raven at the end, like, like the way, you know, watching him sort of trying to keep Raven from interfering in Luna's grieving. And then this sort of like incredibly private heartbreaking moment that they're having. It's like his, his, you know, his like, he's like, not now, not now, like yell at us later. But like right now, like this kid is dying. It's like, that's that, that to me felt like that's a response that comes from, Something emotionally is happening to Murphy in that moment. And also just the fact that he hung around. Like, he didn't, he, you know, all he really needed to do was give the medicine to Abby. You know, to establish that he was sort of back and a part of the team. But he sort of stuck around to see it through, you know? Yeah. Um, Which kind of betrays a... a betrays a, a kind of like connection or, or concern with what's happening that I think he he disavows a little bit when he goes back to explain what happened to Amori. Yeah, I think and I think that it's a nice little kind of parallel to, you know, the very first thing that we see of them when they're kind of talking about Antari, it's like we, you know, it's set up for them in that little, you know, those couple of little scenes that they have that Murphy conceals things from Amori that he isn't comfortable talking about. You know, like that they they don't have like a sort of full disclosure kind of relationship, you know, because it really seems clear that maybe this was the first sort of indication of him being 
a little bit more real with her about what actually went down with Antari than maybe she had known before. Like when he, when he says like, I didn't have a choice. Like that's, that felt like that was being received as new information on some level. Yeah. And so, so we're, we're sort of set up to think like, you know, like, I mean, they love each other. They clearly love each other. Um, and they're just sort of this, you know, like adorable little kind of like grifter schemer pair, but also that like, even Amori, who he trusts more than he's probably trusted anybody in his life, the really messy, vulnerable stuff that makes him feel unsafe and exposed, like even from her, he kind of conceals that. And so I think it makes perfect sense why he would kind of downplay the Antari trauma, you know, um, and uh, and it makes sense why he would, why the motivation that he would give her for you know, why he did what he did was kind of like, look how clever I've been, you know, like I'm, I'm working on a plan to get us in the door, you know, and, and framing it like he's sort of running a long con on Abby when like, when we know that, you know, he, that he sat in that chair for hours with Abby and Jackson, like watching this little girl die. Yeah. And so I, I, and you know, and that he doesn't, he doesn't tell Amori that, you know, like that's a, there's something private about, his emotional response to that kid um, that makes me feel like, again, like it isn't, you know, it's like ev- his motivations for everything are always complicated, you know? And, and it's like, I don't even know if you know why you do the things that you do, Murphy, you know, yeah. but <laughs> I don't think he does, you know, I don't think a lot of, I don't think really, he does. Yeah. Really, is really consciously thought through. And I think he probably actively pushes away consciously thinking through it. You know, it's like, he he does things and then he sort of retroactively rationalizes it. Like I think he stole, stole that yeah. medicine and then explained itself to him. After, explained it to himself later. Yeah, yeah. Like he he felt he felt this sort of like you know he overheard this conversation. He heard Abby say that there was a child that's in there dying. He heard everything that Raven said. He heard everything that Abby said. And then he just smashed his way in there and grabbed it. And then yeah, and then I think that the way he justified it later, the what he told Amori later, what he told himself later. You know, it's like like. That's none of those things that he said were the reason why he did the thing. That's just what you tell yourself later where you're like, well, obviously I must have done X because Y. Right. Exactly. It's like, well, no, you just, you did it because you did it. Yeah. You know, you did it because, (laughs) because something in you was like, do this thing. And partly it's because you're good at stealing and, and that's sort of an instinct for you. And partly it's because, you know, you've already been told that it's going to be really beneficial to you to get at least somebody influential here on your side. And Abby already is warming to you. Um, but also it's like, you know, again, it's like plot driven by character. It's like the, at the deepest sort of formative depths of how John Murphy became the John Murphy that we know, it's the story of what happened to his parents. Yeah. And we got to cut, you know, when they were talking about when when in that scene Abby and Raven started talking about um the fact that one of the people who was dying was a child you know we got a cut to Murphy's face yeah and his expression yeah. changed you know which I think we're meant to believe that 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 revelation changed his sort of relationship to what was happening yeah I absolutely think and so. then right after that you know they they mentioned the thing about two you know the radiation coming in two months and that changed it again so it's a kind of like again it's like a layer of things I don't think that like it's impossible to know which one how, how what had what kind of influence because Murphy doesn't know you know it's just like all kind of um a swirl of <laughs> of impulses and post hoc 
rationalizations. <laughs> um, in which most of us are not that different from Murphy, probably. <laughs> and I love that they, um, you know, I, I think the fact that they, they let him continue to be this sort of complicated and, and opaque, even to Amori about, like, the reasons why he does the things that he does. You know, it's such a great, like, you, you can't really call it a redemption arc because he's still Murphy. Like, he's still yeah. he's the person that he, that he always was. But it but in this, but at the same time, it's, like, the way that they've kind of figured out how to shift, like, our understanding of his character, our understanding of his relationship with these people through his shifting understanding of his relationship with these people is just, is fascinating. And, and it really is, like, he really has his sense of himself in relation to sky crew has changed so much. Um, and he really has kind of like, you know, he's softened, he's discovering how to have relationships with people. And, and yet he is still like, so I'm going to steal some stuff and then I'm going to bounce. Bye. Like it's still, <laughs> it's like Murphy's going to Murphy, you know? Yep. And, um, and yet I think that they're setting up a really interesting arc for him where this, this is, you know, He's rejoining the group, you know, he and Amori are like on the away team. Yeah. The next episode. And, and, and we have of like found families in this episode. I think this is another one where, you know, like that callback to Murphy's the fa- the family that Murphy lost, I think is no mistake. And the fact that this is giving him an excuse to kind of come back to his people, the way that the people that he's chosen to help in return to are kind of juxtaposed with the story of how he lost the family that he once had. You know, I think this is a story about, I, I think Murphy's arc is really about like finding his home again, finding his yeah. place again in a kind of, in a family, in a, in a different kind of family. I think the thing that that's really moving about it is, you know, is, is really, I think, there's so much like kind of teenage boy posturing, you know, where you're sort of like, you know, you keeping people, keep people at arm's length and not wanting to show vulnerability, never wanting to show that you're sad, never wanting to show you have feelings, you know, and never wanting to like look weak, never, you know, like playing things off as a joke to avoid admitting that they really hurt and upset you. Um, and the thing that is just so kind of like beautifully devastating about, you know, kind of like the tragedy of John Murphy is that. I think it's really clear by this point that he really wants to belong somewhere. Like yeah. he really, like I, th- I think deep down in him on some level, he would never, ever, 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 ever admit to anybody out loud. Um, there is like a, he doesn't want to be like, he's not, you know, he's not built to be like kind of like a fringe outlaw, like Amori, who's like kind of, who's very comfortable, you know, sort of just, like, being out on the land with her brother. Like, that was the only life that she knew. Yeah, like, she, like I think Amori would only need Murphy, you know? Like, if it was just the two of them, she'd be okay. Yeah. And I think that, but he has, like, that lo- that longing for, like, a larger community, it seems like. Yeah, I, I think, and I think it's because for him, like, there was a time when he had a family and it was taken away. Yeah. You know, which is which is different from never knowing what that's like. Right. Or from having a family in a community and being ejected from it. Like and being ejected being and ostracized yeah, yeah, yeah. over and over and over again. Um, that we see, um, we see, yeah, we see Murphy sort of being like, um, like otherized, you know, scapegoated, pushed out of the community. 
Um, you know, we'll see him form a bond with somebody and then it'll break. And, and so, you know, so we sort of watch him over the course of four seasons, seasons sort of become this person who kind of just assumes that nobody really gives a shit. Um, which is part of why, like, I, you know, like, I just get so emotional in this season three <laughs> finale over, like, the Murphy reunion. I know. You know, where, where it was just sort of like, like, Bellamy's kind of unquestioned, like, you know, we don't need to sort of sit down and talk through our feelings about all of the, like, shit we pulled on each other. It's like, we're in an elevator and we're being attacked. You're still my guy. You know, or Clark finding him in Polis and saying, you know, like, oh, Murphy's my friend. And Murphy being like, I'm sorry, I'm I'm your what now? <laughs> and you're like, what'd you say, bitch? You know? Uh, since when? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I did not get that memo. And And so the way that he's always sort of, like, startled that people want him around, and yet... You know, when when somebody really needs him, he shows up, you know, and that's what's interesting to me about Murphy is it's like, you know, there are there are moments that he could bail and walk away and be selfish throughout the whole show. I mean, not just in the last season and this season where we see him have that option and he doesn't take it, you know, and and it's and it's mixed, you know, and it's becoming more and more. I think that but I think I think what I'm really interested to see from him this season is like. We haven't ever really, at any point in the show, had a full season with Murphy in the group. He's yeah. always spent some big chunk of the season either gone, kicked out, in a storyline with one other person, on the run, being rejected. And and so I feel like the the trials and tribulations of being the person that he is in this tight-knit community where he knows things, he knows these people, they're not all uniformly happy to see him, you know, witness Miller and Miller, you know, <laughs> on guard duty. Which I was, by the way, that was like among my uh, top moments of the episode. Was... Me too! Father and son, guard in the gate. I, yeah. I know. And then, like, there's, yeah, I, that was just so delightful, and, like, the look that they shared at the end. <laughs> I know. It's like, you're such a dad. Well, and then, oh, this is, this. Is, I mean, a fun little, just speaking of them, fact that we learned at Unity Days that people probably don't know, um, is that, so I don't know his name, but the actor who plays, who plays Miller's dad, that Jared Joseph knew him like they used to work out at the same gym together and they would like play basketball together and so this this guy like jared knew him and he kind of like mentored him as a tv actor when jared was first starting out um working in vancouver and i don't know if that's like if it's through that connection that that's how they found him when they were casting for a father for him like i don't like or if it sort of was like kind of sheer kismet because vancouver is a small town everyone knows everyone um but that they really like in real life kind of have this like parental sort of mentor relationship which which is great because like even when they have like two seconds of screen time together you're just like I feel like you're related you know and and I also liked just the very subtle like we talked about with um in the in the premiere with that moment that we had with Clark and Abby where it's like again like just sort of making it textual that the parents of the queer kids know about their relationships and support them yeah yeah I think that teeny tiny little moment that was barely even a moment um, where, you know, Murphy and Miller are kind of sassing and Murphy's kind of like, oh, you know, Brian would kick my ass, you know, just having, having Miller's dad sort of present for that moment. And then just sort of being like, welcome back, John, you know, like, like just that little like reminder that David Miller knows that, you know, Brian is his son's partner. And like, just like, like, again, like it wasn't even a thing, but it was just sort of like world building of the fact that like, 
this is a thing that exists in their family unit, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Um, and just like, you know, like as a gay person, those moments are really important just to remind us that like these are, you know, we're building a world where parents are supportive of these relationships and that if if David Miller ends up having a problem with Miller and Brian, it's going to be for the same reason that Miller and Brian had problems in the last episode, which was that it's like these sort of clashes of values, you know, and, yeah, and nothing yeah. to do with like not like the gay thing, you know, right, um, so right, just like that, that tiny little, you know. It's just and it's just and it always makes me happy to see David Miller again. I was like, I missed him last season. I was just like, where have you been? I remember season two just being like so freaked out that Miller's dad was gonna die. You know, I was just like, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, you can't kill Miller's dad. So every time he shows up, I'm like, oh, thank God he's still alive. <laughs> yeah, I he's somebody where like you know, given how kind of comparatively low screen time he's had, I got real attached to that man real fast. Yeah, no, me know? too. And like, real he fast. better be on that list, Clark. <laughs> yes, he better be on that list. Yeah, like I don't even care. Like I don't care who you have to bump off. <laughs> But I actually was thinking one of the things, you know, I guess we're jumping ahead to kind of how, how things are being set up for next week, you know, so um, I was actually thinking about that last night about um, David Miller and about Brian, you know, like, like I think the the list, the list to me, I think, and maybe, I don't know, we haven't talked about this, like, so maybe you have a different opinion, but for me, it feels like, okay, like, so the list is a MacGuffin, like, the list is not... It doesn't exist to tell us in actuality, like, you know, who's going to live and who's going to die and what's going to happen to them. To me, it felt like for right now, the reason that the list exists is about what does it do to Clark as a person having had to make this list? And what does it do to her relationships with everybody else around her when either inevitably when when the news of the list leaks out or how she feels about the choices that she's had to make looking at these people in the eye and that that for at least for right now that that's sort of the role of it and I think that an interesting place where I could see some things fracturing as you know as people who are really close to her you know like at least like it seems like from next week's premiere or preview um that at least Jasper and Monty now know about it you know um so it gets found almost immediately and um and so part of me sort of wondered like okay so what if she's you know, what if Nathan Miller's on that list and his dad isn't, but her mom is, you know? Yeah, and yeah. And so, like, having to sort of negotiate, like, not just making choices about who lives and who dies, but also who gets to have a family and who gets to have a partner, you know, like, that, you know, like, can she justify keeping Brian, you know? So, um, so I, so it was, it was nice to get a little, like, you know, Miller, you know, father-son kind of moment because I just love them. But then also part of me was sort of like, I really, like... I really, really hope, <laughs> I hope that they're going to be okay. Like, I just really need this pair to be okay. But it did make me feel like, I wonder, you know, the mental calculations she has to do to save who. It's not just about, are there people that she's friends with that she left off, but it's about, like, their relationships. You know, like, is she keeping Monty because she needs Monty the engineer and she's not keeping Harper? Making choices not just about which of her friends live and die, but also which of their relationships they get to keep. Do you want to talk about Cadigan? Yes. I have a lot of, I'm like, I'm, I'm kind of high key obsessed with Bill Cadigan now. <laughs> I'm with the second Dawn cult. Um, and for, for a couple of different reasons, partly I, I like, I mean, we were talking about this um, before, like I, I like the idea that one of the running threads that they're sort of, seeding into the season in a lot of different levels is kind of the notion of 
zealotry. You know, we yeah. have we have in in two different ways. We have sort of a religious extremism kind of thing. You know, we have this sort of perception that we get pretty clearly from the conversation with Roan that people like Gaia are perceived as kind of religious extremists, you know, kind of fanatics for the um, the kind of the commander cult's sort of religious beliefs. And, and so then there's this sort of very nice, tidy little parallel on the Arcadia side where, you know, where we learn from space YouTube on Jaha's iPad, um, <laughs> from, from like the Chicago Herald Tribune or something like that, um, you know, that we, that he introduced us to this character who, who like immediately I was sort of side-eyeing because I was like, I recognize this guest actor from like a jillion things and they wouldn't waste that guy on like two YouTube clips on Jaha's iPad. So I think we're going to get flashbacks of him. I think he's yeah. going to become somebody who's important. But this, this sort of doomsday cult guy, you know, this cult, this cult second dawn um so the fact so obviously the fact that we learned that their motto is from the ashes we will rise which is which is presented to us before the season even started as like the theme of this season so it's like clearly they're important they're another like you know their cult is organized into 12 levels which means of course there's a secret 13th one right, because right, that's how this course, show works you know <laughs> so plot wise he's introduced to us as um and this is also another like a, a kind of nifty little piece of world building that i really liked that that we could only have we only could get from jaha once again i'm just like i can't like they're building a season where i'm like i can't imagine the storyline without jaha in it how are they doing this to me <laughs> the sort of the knowledge that jaha drops on us that's a really cool piece of kind of fleshing out their world is that there's sort of like you know there's there's the body of knowledge of the history of humanity that existed in the in the chancellor's files which raven says like she went through she vetted like every potential bunker that could possibly you know that was that was on the list they consider for the hundred she now has access in the arc mainframe to all those files and then what jaha kind of basically reveals is that you know there's all of these other things about humanity about human history about what the world used to be like that aren't written down anywhere in official record that are kind of passed down you know like i think like the real story of polaris was from chancellor to chancellor or through the council that like the general populace doesn't necessarily know or have access to this information which is how he you know and it's it sort of seemed to be presented like he's either known all along or he like he he knew before like the hundred were sent down that this other bunker was a possibility but it wasn't confirmed that it existed they didn't need it at the time the way they needed it now so so there's this guy who has this cult who we're told two weeks before the bombs drop which seems significant gives this speech that we see a part of where he basically is telling people like the end is near the end is coming you know and so join with me and then basically like you know basically join my cult and i can promise you salvation when the world ends so jaha knows that there's a possibility that this bunker exists so it was sort of long rumored he thinks he's figured out where it is you know they they get there and like and of course you know of course it doesn't work it's you know full of melting liquid corpses because it wasn't sealed properly against radiation <laughs> because it's episode three and it will be way too easy for them to be like oh cool crisis averted we can put everybody in here never mind the season's over um so i so so part of why i'm interested in, in bill cadigan is that i definitely think that you know thelonious any cult in a storm jaha <laughs> He already seems to be creepily over-identifying with Cadigan, you know, when yeah. he's trying to sort of, when he's kind of justifying a little bit on, you know, when Bellamy's like, okay, well, this guy sounds fucking nuts. And by the know. way, like, I feel, I feel totally vindicated by my, like, stupid Jaha 
trailer podcast joke becoming like so central to the plot of the season yeah (laughs) like this is why i love your brain it's like you get some little snippet of something like this is this is like this is like when you when you called the entire alley storyline including the fact that it was going to connect to lexa and the commander mythology from like like in like november (laughs) from like three tweets from jason and you like hacked the whole thing um and so this one it's like we see him in the trailer sort of wandering around the countryside shaved headed dispersing zen cohen's and you were like oh okay you know and and you're right you know (laughs) It's a, it's a, you know, the cult thing. But so he is clearly, he has, he is emotionally connected on some level with this guy, relates to him in some way, and is become, and, and is, I think, I suspect what they're teeing up is that Jaha's arc over the course of the rest of the season is going to be his conviction that there is a secret 13th bunker somewhere and trying to find it. And what I, and what I hope is that, that turns out to be true because if it isn't, then it's just retreading the City of Light story beats we've already had, where he tries to help and then fucks everything up even worse than if he hadn't even tried yeah. to help. So, so I'm I'm less interested in it if it's just going to be like it's City of Light 2.0, which is Jaha has some crackpot whim to save humanity that ends up fucking everything up again. Um, but what I'm very interested in is the person. Bill Cadigan and how like is he connected to Becca in some way is Second Dawn connected in any way to what happened with Allie what's his backstory is it possible that somewhere in this 13th bunker that he and some of his people did survive are our grounders descended from them like did Becca happen upon this bunker full of people you know like like the, all the things that we don't know about what happened before right before the apocalypse and what happened right after the apocalypse in terms of kind of the um the Becca story I'm interested in where if anyone Cadigan kind of lands with that and I also felt like and this is kind of the last thing I wanted to say so so I one of the things I thought was really cool about this episode sort of structurally was it felt like we we gained on sort of a macro level a ton more information um, by the end of this episode than we had at the beginning of it about sort of what the kind of potential lifeboat options are that are on the table um, which sort of so my my kind of theory this is just sort of wild speculation is that we're going to end up with you know sort of maximize survivability clusters of the cast in a bunch of different places you know when the apocalypse hits you know they're gonna they're gonna try a couple of different things to sort of see like they did when they when they sent the ark to the ground and they were like we're gonna divide everyone up among all these stations and kind of hope to god that some of you survive you know that i think a similar thing will be happening this time where it's like okay so we can fit 100 people in arcadia you're going to go over here and then we end up with x number of doses of night blood serum and so that's x number of people and you go over here so we're sort of like casting that as wide, as wide as we can and i think that one of the things that's interesting about the sort of mythology of this cult that we got introduced to is i think that they're really setting it up for a potential third option being if jaha finds another bunker and whether there's people alive there or or you know what the what the twist is of that that it's not going to be sort of just like an easy solution but it was cool to sort of see okay so by the end of this we now have three potential survival options on the table where before we only had one and so even though the story continues to be like it's really dark it's really grim you know the timeline accelerated from six months to two months so like things are getting stressful but also that we have these little glimmers of like there are possibilities on the table at the end here that weren't at the beginning and I think that's really cool you know what just occurred to me as as I was listening to you what if Cadigan because you know in his little speech um at the beginning 
um, he's kind of like listing off all the various like things happening in the world that that lead him to think the end of the world is coming. And of course, like the hashtag on that was for the four horsemen. He's talking about the four horsemen of the apocalypse coming. But one thing that he said is that, you know, technology is poisoning our minds, right? Which was, right. of course, like an echo to what Ilion said. What if we find out that the origins of the Flame Keeper cult were not with Becca, but with Cadigan? So Becca is the first commander. You know, she came mm-hmm. down, she had the, the Nightblood technology, and she had the flame, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. But somehow or other, the reason why that got transmuted, because Becca obviously was going to come down, she's going to make everyone a Nightblood. I think her goal was to give everyone the flame, right? Like, she was never, her goal was never to just be the only person with that. She wanted everyone to have it. So what if the reason, what if we find out that the reason why, the reason how we got from Becca coming down with Nightblood Serum to a grounder culture based around a superstition specifically of technology, fear of technology, and one flame and some limited number of Nightbloods that are sort of worshipped as a mystical thing rather than understood. Mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. if that was Cadigan? So here's what I love about your brilliant genius brain is, is uh, <laughs> if this is true. This is like... I, this like I this is really exciting to me because what this does even like even if this is a retcon on the part of the show's writer writers what this does if this is accurate like if this is if that's what we're actually going to find out happened that fixes the fundamental structural problem with that we're all asked from day one from the pilot of this show to just sort of accept that ninety seven years was enough time to rewrite all of human culture you know especially knowing that grounder culture as we understood it last season if it was built by becca becca would want people to have knowledge becca would want people to communicate becca was a, a scientist curious you know like seek higher things she was all about it yeah 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 and so so like nothing nothing in how grounder society evolved feels like it evolved from a scientist so how quickly things changed how anti-technology they are like 97 years is not enough time for you know, a scientist to come down and save people who who live in the 20, whatever, first century, 22nd century, and aren't inherently scared of technology, like less than a century isn't enough time to instill in them a fear of technology, even if she told them, like even, even if she was basically like, you know, you can't use technology because Allie could hack it. But that's not even true because, because she, because like, I mean, if, I mean, yes, that is kind of true, but like, Becca made the flame to reprogram Allie. Like, theoretically, Becca right, could have right. fixed that problem. That was the whole thing, right? So, like, that fixes that whole plot hole. So, like, what if... And then, right. and then that becomes a whole, like, a challenge to... We were presented with, like, Gaia as this figure of, you know, whose whole life has been organized around this faith. You know, like, another challenge to that faith is, like, what if you, what if you find out that, like, the first commander came down and, like... If there was some sort of like conflict between her and Cadigan, you know, that he right, that he right. stole that from her. Yeah, because we don't know, like we know nothing about what happened to Becca after, like, like we know that she arrived and that she became the first commander, um, and we know that her technology was at least to some degree 
successful because she's still, you know, because she existed in the plane. Yeah. But we have no idea, like, the, the, what happened to the people, the social hierarchy. We don't know how she died. And we don't, and what we don't know, like, the big missing piece that this could really answer is how that got transmuted from basically like a technological and medical solution to what essentially functions like a religion. And if Cadigan and his cult of people who already viewed him as a supreme leader and already distrusted technology and already he had sort of like brainwashed into this kind of level of backwards thinking, like I think it'd be much easier for Cadigan to forcibly kind of rewrite the narrative of human history in order to kind of erase all of this stuff and create this kind of quasi-spiritual thing. if he framed it as, like, an actual, like, religious apocalypse. Like, that world has ended. We're starting a new world on this new premise. Right. And, like, you know, we've got these seals. You've got, like, you've got it's this, like, extremely hierarchized religion with different levels. Twelve of them. I mean, like... Well, and twelve clans. You have twelve, 12 seals. Clans, you have twelve say. clans. And twelve yeah. clans, which also seem to have, at least until recently, a fairly hierarchical relationship to one another. You know, uh-huh. like, if there is a thirteenth seal, what if that, like, what if he stole the flame and the commander is, like, the thirteenth highest level? That's how, that's where commanders come from. That's oh, why we yeah. have, like, Pope Commander. Yeah, 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 yeah. What if the first commander isn't Becca? What if it's Cadigan? Ooh, this is very interesting to me. Yes, like <laughs> Becca Prom had like they worship her as the first commander because she's the one who brought it to right. them. But like structurally, in some other way, like like in terms of setting up the hierarchy. And now now I'm now I'm sort of wondering like is the um like if if the if each clan is it like if if one clan evolved from like you guys were level four right exactly you know like is level one the lowest level and they're the scrappiest and so that's like luna and flow crew and her like we take people who no one else wants they're like the hufflepuff of the <laughs> right right yeah and is and is tree crew who's the one that seems you know or ice nation you know who seem to have the most political power like they're like the higher level you know is if if ice nations descended from the like you know the 11s it makes sense why they're or the 12s like why they're a monarchy and everyone else is just like yeah so i mean there's this all this is all a little whack of conspiracy theories but i do feel like i think just purely based on the fact that everything about second dawn thematically ties into what we're told the whole arc of the season is with a sort of from the ashes we will rise you know and and the sort of is immediately compelling weirdo that we just see in this tiny little like internet clip that Jaha is showing them in the rover it's like okay so so not just in terms of is there or isn't there a bunker but the beliefs of these people and who they are and who this man was is going to become important in a structural way that's beyond just the fact that Jaha has a crush on this cult leader and has decided to adapt his own wardrobe because you dress for the job you want. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so it was like beyond Jaha's cultification, beyond is there a 13th secret bunker, like what these people believe. Because otherwise it could have just been like a kooky millionaire has a bunker and Jaha's going to go find right, it. Right, right, right. You know, it's like, it's a, but it's a religion and we're, and we're introduced to Gaia at the same time. So the idea that they're the same religion is really interesting to me. Oh, man. Oh, man, I hope we're right. I hope we're right, too. That would be pretty, that'd be pretty amazing. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Well, All right. this was an emotional roller coaster of magic and wonder, and I'm just thrilled that we got to share this special time together of Balearic flailing. 
<laughs> Too bad we didn't have any bagels. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, bringing it full circle. It's so funny that you say bagels, and it's so funny that I didn't notice for seventeen years that you say bagels. <laughs> this is iconic. <laughs> Truly, some of our finest work. This really is. Yeah, this is. This is. We're at. We're at peak Claire, and we're we're baiting the Claire and shippers. <laughs> uh, righty. Um. So we will be back next week with our recap of three oh four, which is um a lie. What a lie, a lie defended, protected, guarded, lie guarded, a lie guarded, a yeah. lie guarded. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is wait, wait, wait. Is it? Okay, maybe maybe I've just really <laughs> drunk too much cold Kool-Aid. But, like, that's a weirdly phrased thing. So, like, it's Allie, right? Like, it's, this is some... They're going somewhere to Allie's place or something like that. So oh. it has with Allie. It's like, a lie, oh, right? Oh, damn. Like, yes. Because, oh, my God, Because yes. otherwise, like, a lie guarded is a weird sentence. Yes. Oh, my God. You're so right. You are so right. I'm taking this as confirmation that the place that they go to is Becca's lab. Yes, absolutely. Oh, my God. Oh my god. Oh my god. Okay, yes. <laughs> since, okay, since I can't top that, let's just go. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>